Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we are going to talk to historian James Daschuk about the new edition of his highly acclaimed book, Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation, and the Loss of Indigenous Life, published in 2019. Professor Daschuk is an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Studies at the University of Regina with a cross appointment to the Department of History at the same university. His book has received numerous awards, including the Canadian Historical Association's Sir John A. Macdonald Prize and was called one of the most important books of the 21st century by the Literary Review of Canada. When it first appeared, it was named Book of the Year by the Globe and Mail, Quill and Choir, and the Writers' Trust. Now, I have to state up front that I'm somewhat familiar with the development of this book. I took Jim Daschuk's dissertation home with me to my cottage in northern Saskatchewan, and I spent a month reading it. It was a very long dissertation basically the equivalent of two volumes. I was so impressed with the dissertation that I suggested to him that he should get it published, but that he would have to probably cut about 30% of the dissertation. I think the book went into development for about seven years after that. So on that note, Jim, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Greg, it's great to talk to you. Great to be here. For the few readers that haven't had a chance to read your book yet, tell our listeners what the main thesis is. Well, uh, despite the fact that I went into probably 1,200 years of, of history and archaeology, what the question that drove me was how do we account, what are the origins of the present health disparity here in Saskatchewan and the rest of the country between First Nations people and the rest of us? Because uh, as you know, there's a huge gap uh, in life expectancy, in, in health and wellness and disease. And I wanted to know, you know, if that had always existed or, or where did things start to change? Well, that's a contemporary policy question, but you were trained as a historian. So how did you come to that very current policy question as a historian? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, I think what it is, is uh, as, a, his, as his, a historian, you know, we, we see all these uh, strange relationships in the present, and we're trying to figure out, you know, what the antecedents are, like where they evolved from. That's my that's my contribution in kinesiology and health studies. I keep teaching the health students, uh, you know, about historical forces and that kind of thing. So um, same marginalization. My, my historian colleagues in grad school would talk about certain people being marginalized, and really what I did was I just took it the extra step. And as you know, being a, a world leader in public policy research, if a policy is successful, people are going to thrive. And if a policy goes the other way, people are going to get sick and die. Like we're seeing that played out on a huge scale right now during the pandemic. Well, in your book, you draw a sharp distinction between cultural history versus material history. You emphasize that you focus on the latter, uh, on what took place as opposed to what people thought about what took place. I'd like you to explain this important distinction. 
Yeah, so I guess uh, as a little bit of a backstory, I have a BA in, in archaeology from Trent University. And when I was working on, on my BA, the prevailing, I guess, anthropological interpretation was something called cultural materialism. And really what it was, was behavior is, is kind of steered by how many calories you're bringing in, what, what, you, what your diet is, what your ecology is. And I remember even taking things like semiotics and cultural studies back in the 80s as an antidote to that. But what I found was over the course of my grad school training, I sort of uh, migrated back to that very, um, I guess it's positivistic, uh, it, you know, like it's a very grounded approach. How many people got sick? You know, how many people, according to the records, died? And also, say in the early 90s, as I was going through grad school and just uh, sort of embarking on my PhD thesis, there was a a lot of discussion about cultural appropriation. So one of my comps fields was oral history, and I had big plans to go out and, and talk to Indigenous people about you know their understanding of things and just realize that I really wasn't the right person for that. So often when I'm giving a talk, I you know I'll, like I'm, I'm free to admit this, I've told half of the story. I've told you know sort of the nuts and bolts materialistic version of events. What you know what happened to the best of my ability. It's for an Indigenous person, uh, member of the community who's probably been through the ceremonies and has gained the trust of, the, you know, the, the knowledge keepers in their community to tell that other half of the story. Well, just to give uh, our listeners an idea of the scope of the book, I'd like you to just describe the period it covers and why you covered such an extensive uh, period of centuries. Sure. Well, actually, you have a bit to do with that, Greg. Uh, you probably remember about 20 years ago, you asked me if I could, you, you were working on, a, I think it was a Shirk-funded project about institutional adaptations to climate change. And just as I was finishing my dissertation, we had a conversation and you asked me if I could, uh, what did you say, relate cultural change, Indigenous cultural change on the plains with climate change. And I needed a job at the time, so I just said, oh yeah, sure, no problem. And what I did was, <laughs> Uh, I went back because I had no idea really, you know, this is, uh, I don't know, probably back in the very early 2000s, I really had no idea what drove climate. So rather than deduction, having an idea, I was induction. I just, I remember actually spreading out on a, on a big table at the old college building at U of R, a piece of butcher paper, and just started to, to write down things like volcanoes and uh, solar activity and El Ninos. There's a 500-year or more record of El Ninos. And then uh, our colleague Dave Sachin from the, from the uh, Climate Institute had uh, you know, a millennial level of tree ring data and that kind of thing. And what I did was I just started to compile all these different things. What I noticed was that sometime in the mid to late 13th century into the 14th century, there was a whole bunch of archaeological change that happened very soon after uh, the beginning of the Little Ice Age. Like that, was, uh, that was a real revelation to me. And really, I just, that unfolded as I was sort of draw, writing down those, uh, those climate drivers. So uh, going back that far uh, and realizing, you know, sort of the, the, uh, the cultural shock that came with the Little Ice Age here in North America, I started to look at the archaeology record. And like I said, I've got a BA in, in that field. And what I found was, was that there was a, uh, despite the limited absolute numbers of, of bones with tuberculosis le lesions, there was a huge spike in the 14th and 15th century, which meant that people were probably hungry, probably people were malnourished. So one of the things I was kind of nervous about uh, as, I, as I wrote Clearing the Plains 
was I was worried about a backlash for talking about um, the uh, the shock to Indigenous societies before the arrival of Europeans. But I really haven't uh, haven't heard much. You know, I haven't really gotten much flack for that. Well, part of the reason is is that there's not a lot of knowledge uh, about what happened in the plains pre-contact, and you filled a huge vacuum, and nobody has done the enormous job of putting together the sources. And this brings me to what is what I think the most unique aspect of your book, is that you bring together three strands of research, each with its own disciplinary methods. The first is public health, in particular, the transmission of infectious diseases. The second is pre- and post-contact Indigenous history, and you absolutely need to rely upon archaeology in terms of reconstructing that pre-contact Indigenous history, and there's all kinds of issues associated with the written sources or post-contact. And the third strand is environmental history, uh, the, the kind of history that you worked on when you were working with me on the climate change project. Um, how did you actually do your research in these very different areas? Well, like I said, with regard to, uh, say, the, 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 clim the climate change, I just started to, to um, you know, read what was in the literature at the time. And then what I, again, what I did was I superimposed that on, on the archaeological literature during, um, you know, sort of pre-contact days and then looked at the historical record that, um, you know, like Clearing the Plains is largely a synthesis of other people's his historical work. And what I did was I just, adding that extra layer, provided a whole bunch of, um, a whole bunch of new, I guess, interpretations for events that uh, you know people had talked about. Maybe uh, human agency was the most important thing. But if there was a there was a huge drought, say in the 1790s, the worst drought in this part of the world in 500 years, that had an impact on on people's actions. Well, let's go to public health history because here you you bring to bear quite a knowledge of how disease vectors work, and in particular, the connection between animal-based disease and human-based disease and, and the connections between the two and the transmission from animals to human beings. Uh, how did you ever learn all of that and apply it to research of this type? With a lot of time, so there were time, you know, like there were probably months when it's like, oh, okay, it's time to learn about zoonotic disease or whatever, whatever weakness I had, I just went to the literature and and got up to speed as best I could. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm no expert in any of those fields, but I guess um, once you're so deep into a hole, it's hard to come out of that hole. So maybe what I did was I managed to get low enough to get an idea of what was going on within the field. And then go into the next, you know, into the next box hole, if you want to think about it that way. Well, you are an expert in indigenous history and, you know, your dissertation uh, where you did a lot of this work was really in a, in a very close and clear examination of primary and secondary sources. And I mention this because some of the primary sources involve the narratives diaries and journals of fur traders uh, in books that were published by the Champlain Society a long time ago, uh, supplemented by 
all the other sources, archival sources that you could find, and you put together this incredible narrative of what happened based upon these written sources. Um, so drawing upon that expertise, I mean, how did you approach that, given that you were putting together literally thousands of sources together to come up with a, a reconstructed narrative of what occurred? Well, thanks, Greg. That's a, that's a big compliment. Um, I guess what it was was, you know, as a as a master's student, Jennifer Brown, one of the the big North American uh, ethno historians, was one of my teachers, and she taught us to uh, interrogate the text. You know, so we'd have, you know, rather than just um, you know accepting what somebody wrote, try to think about the context, try to break it down, and and you know, rather than necessarily the meaning that was meant what you know what what could be derived from say some statement and i guess corroborating using possibly archaeology there's probably some overlap with the historical record and archaeology but also like i said uh once once using dave sachin's work and 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 other climate scientists work having that uh sort of environmental record then looking at historical events sometimes it gave a different perspective because you knew, like I said, there was a drought or there was a terrible winter or the year the uh, the bison disappeared, there was a double El Nino. There was no snow for two years. So that was a huge, you know, that was a huge climatic event. And unless you were paying attention to the weather, uh, you know, you, you'd miss that. Well, okay, you're our witness to yesterday. So take us back to the early 1870s, right after the acquisition of Rupert's Land by the Government of Canada and, of course, the Great Western Smallpox Epidemic of 1869 to 1870. What would it have been like for a Plains Cree buffalo hunter, for example, and his family living in what would become known as Treaty 6 territory? Well, I can't enter into that Plains Cree uh, hunter's mind but what I could probably think about is during that time, most of the people, including the indigenous people out west, knew about the trouble in Red River. They knew that Canada was coming in. They knew that there was pushback. They knew that the, the Métis had, uh, had stood their ground at Red River. And they didn't know, and the Hudson's Bay Company probably informed them, that they were no longer the, you know, the, the quasi-government authority. So they didn't know who was coming. There was a lot of uncertainty, disease aside. And then as that epidemic broke out and spread from southern Alberta eastward into Saskatchewan, uh, people had experience with, uh, with smallpox 30 or 40 years earlier. So the, the adults and the elders who'd survived the 1830 smallpox epidemic would have known how useful Europeans were in combating smallpox. In fact, you could, you could snuff out a regional smallpox epidemic with a mason jar full of scabs using a process called inoculation. This is where we've all heard of the Lancet as a as a, a medical journal. That Lancet was was uh, basically the scalpel that would cut skin and you would put the smallpox uh, scab in into the patient that you wanted to inoculate. So there are many dozens of cases in 1869-70 of indigenous people, and I can think of Fort Pitt, for example, Indigenous people came to Fort Pitt and asked for medicine, and they didn't have any medicine. Like they'd used it on them, either use it on themselves or they didn't have any. And 
there was actually a, a response. People, the indigenous people were dying outside of the palisade at Fort Pitt. Uh, anyone who had access, and there were, there were um, plenty of missionaries, there, there was a lot of missionary activity here in the Northwest. And uh, a lot of the indigenous people would have gone to the missionaries because uh, Christianity was part and parcel of medicine at that time. Like you would go to the, the missionary to get medical treatment, but as you're getting your medical treatment, you're also being indoctrinated or you're being sold Christianity. So a lot of the indigenous people went to the missionaries. And if you went to a Catholic missionary, you were probably brought into church and you were probably encouraged to pray. And if you were, went to a Protestant missionary at that time, you were probably, if you were inoculated, you may have been, or you were told to go to the bush and not come back till next year. So not surprisingly, uh, the outcome of that was that uh, people who went to the Catholics died in much higher numbers because they got sick while they were, you know, gathered around praying. And many of the people associated with the Anglo with the Protestant missionaries survived because they isolated themselves. Um, so a uh, pretty chaotic time. And in the aftermath of that, um, Chief Sweetgrass and others knew the Canadians were coming. They knew that, that Canada had sort of asserted its sovereignty in Red River. And from probably 1871 on, as the dust settled from that epidemic, uh, some of the chiefs invited the Canadians in to their territory to share the territory. But whenever they did that, they mentioned, uh, bring your medicines as well, because we, uh, we, we know that they work. Right. So let's go to the government of Canada at the time. It's in an expansionist mode. It's buying up this huge expanse of territory called Rupert's Land. It wants to extend this new country uh, into the West. It already uh, has British Columbia. It's part of the Confederation. What was its perspective on the Plains at the time? Uh, what did it want to do in terms of the future, in terms of the agricultural settlement? What did it want to do with the people that actually uh, lived in the plains at that time, both the First Nations and the Métis? What was its solution to this, uh, what it no doubt viewed as a problem as the buffalo herds diminished and people began to starve? I think there are two answers to that, Greg. First one is during the Liberal administration, and most of I'm in Treaty I'm in Treaty Four territory. Greetings from Treaty Four territory. Um, most of the numbered treaties were completed. I guess Treaty Three, Four, Five, Six, and Seven were completed during the Liberal administration of Mackenzie, and most of those treaties were completed in order to put out some kind of regional conflict. So here in Treaty Four territory. Uh, signed in 1874, negotiated in 1874. In 1873, there was a crew of geological surveyors basically just coming to, to, to get a lay of the land and check out what the natural resources were. But they didn't check with the Plains Cree and the Anishinaabe people who were, who were the owners of the territory. So they were considered to be trespassers and were really sort of uh, marched out of the territory at gunpoint. So that's really the reason why Treaty 4 was undertaken uh, at Fort Capel in 1874, the next year. So there was no imminent settlement agenda. Really what this was, was we're just gotta get control of this territory. You know, there there had been surveyors, um, uh, George Monroe Grant had come through in, in the early 1870s. You know, the railway was a long way off. Where things really changed 
was in 1878, the national policy election, where McDonald sort of, you know, uh, staked his future on building the railway as quickly as possible. So it went, you know, uh, from my perspective, it went from a position of ignorance and, you know, something down the road during the Liberal administration to um, an impediment to the completion of probably the biggest mega project in Canadian history. And I guess something I, I talk about um, to my students is when McDonald assumed office as prime minister in the fall of 1878, he also took on the superintendency of the Department of Indian Affairs. He was superintendent general. So he was the de facto minister of Indian Affairs. And in his correspondence with, um, with Edgar Dudney, he said, taking care of Indian affairs, I'm using air quotes here, being responsible for that portfolio is so important to the completion of the railway project, he didn't entrust it to anyone else. So in completing the railroad, he oversaw Indian affairs. And even in 2020, McDonald is the longest serving minister of Indian affairs in Canadian history. He oversaw that, uh, that portfolio for 10 years at, at arguably the, you know, like the, um, the beginning of the relationship, the, the dysfunctional relationship between First Nations people and the Dominion of Canada. And to what extent was uh, uh, he culpable, personally culpable for how First Nations were treated, how the Métis were dealt with in particular, the rebellion, uh, and the government of Canada's desire to get this area ready for agricultural settlement by Canadians, Americans, and Europeans, uh, and pushing the First Nations to the periphery. Was, was, this, was this him in particular, or was it his government, but he was the lead person on it? It was his portfolio. He was the minister, of, like I said, he was the superintendent general of Indian Affairs. Edgar Dudney was his uh, his eyes and ears in the West, if you will. And when when Dudney first came West, he saw the impact of the famine in southern Alberta. He realized that people were starving, and um, he realized Dudney realized that that food was a very effective management tool, if you want to think about it that way, and in such a cruel way. If you could use food um, as, I don't know about a weapon, but if you could use food to control people, you had a very effective tool in your, uh, in your kit. And really what McDonald did was, uh, without people, and you know, if you look at it, I don't know, from a legalistic perspective, McDonald's rule after he, he uh, took over was, even though there was a, a humanitarian crisis, the bison had disappeared, anyone who was not signed on to treaty was not eligible for rations. And so prior to 1878, just a little less than half, I don't have exact numbers, I don't think anyone really does, a little less than half of the 20,000 or so First Nations people had signed on to treaty. Within a year and a half of McDonald taking power, 11,000 more people took, took treaty. So they're not negotiating nation to nation, talking about sovereignty. Really what they're doing is they're exchanging their freedom for food for their for themselves and their kids. And the last, um, I guess the the last saddest case of that is is the very highly regarded chief whose English name is Big Bear, uh, basically um, went to Fort Walsh in the in the Cypress Hills. I think it was New Year's New Year's Eve in 1882, and he had done everything he could for six or seven years to avoid signing on to treaty. 
he signed on to treaty that day in exchange for food and was ordered to march north. And as soon as, as, as that group had left in the spring, the Mounties were, were ordered to dismantle Fort Walsh and re rebuild the post at Maple Creek to protect the railway. So that's really, um, from my mind, a pivotal time when even the role of the Northwest Mounted Police kind of shifted from one of advocate of First Nations to, I don't know, subjugator of First Nations? Well, that brings me to the word genocide. It's never actually used in your book, yet many have argued, based on your history and the evidence that you've provided, that the Canadian government's actions in the late 19th century amounted to genocide. What's your reaction to this very loaded term? Well, you know, uh, when did I graduate? 2002. So I did most of my my grad courses probably in the early 90s. And if somebody was to bring up genocide in a Canadian history class in the early 90s, they would have been thought of as a kook, right? Like there was, that was just so far beyond where we were as a, as a discipline. It's been very, very interesting in the last few years, right? Um, 2015, just a week or so before uh, the um, the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Chief Justice McLaughlin mentioned cultural genocide uh, in a in a public event. So the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is is now using uh, a modified term, but she's using that term. And of course, um, uh, the commissioners of the Royal Commission use cultural genocide as well. I, I learned later that uh, the terms the terms of the the TRC. You know, as it was being formed, there was something about they could not use the word genocide in it, like as, a, as their conclusion. A, a member of parliament told me that. Um, so the discussion over genocide, like we're having um, calm debates about that nowadays, right? Like in, in, in public, in, you know, in discourse at the universities, that whole discussion has come, I don't know, in my mind, a million miles in the last five years. So... Um, in my own mind, I'm reticent to use it too. If you use it too much, and a lot of people want to use it because I think it, you know, it provides. I'm trying to think of a good way to say this. It provides an acknowledgement that this is the worst possible, you know, behavior of one group to another group, right? It's you know, killing killing a racial group on purpose. Um, and so I've been asked many times, you know, like, was it genocide? And I, this sounds like a chicken answer, but it depends on the, the questioner's uh, description of genocide. A couple of years ago, I reviewed a book called Colonial Genocide in Indigenous America. And each of the 12 or 15 authors provided their own interpretation of what genocide was in the beginning. And then they decided whether it was or it wasn't. Most of them decided it was because it was, you know, uh, uh, you know, according to their um, according to their definitions. So uh, I was, you know, I was super reticent to use it in my book. Also, another thing is, if you use those terms, they're so loaded. Genocide, colonialism isn't quite at that level, but it's another one. You might turn the reader off. So what I really wanted to do, and I was conscious of this, one of my one of my uh, best teachers back in grad school was Jack Bumstead. He just died last winter, but he was a popular history writer. He was a very good scholar, but also he, his uh, emphasis was getting word out to the public. And what he said was, you guys want to write for an educated layperson. 
So you don't want too much jargon. You don't like you don't want this to be a closed sort of space, a closed argument that only professionals can engage in. So I was conscious of that. And what I did was I just tried to tell the story. And a couple of years ago, I had the honor to, to present uh, some of my my work and, and was quizzed by the Standing Committee on Aboriginal Affairs of the Senate, along with John Malloy, the, the writer of the story of a national crime. And I gave my talk, basically, a, you know, 15, 20 minute precy of clearing the plains. And I, I can't remember the senator's name, but he was a youngish man from Alberta. So he'd been probably um, named to the Senate by Stephen Harper, like, you know, uh, and what he told me was, as we were going around, he said, I hated every word you said, but I acknowledge every word you said. And so had I used those more, I don't know, trigger words, it's 2020, I guess everybody knows what that means. Had I used one of those words, that might have turned, turned that person off completely. So in telling the story, I think it's been more effective than putting a label on it. And if somebody else wants to put a label on it, that's great. Okay, well, they, they certainly have. And, and um, I think that it's fair to say that, uh, that cultural genocide is the label they have put on it, and some would go further. But uh, in one of the forwards, Nigan Sinclair says that your book really changed the narrative in Canada and is uh, also the first step to reconciliation. What do you think he meant by this? I've given literally hundreds of talks in the last few years. And often here in Saskatchewan, there's there's kind of brown faces, the indigenous faces, and then there are uh, kind of white faces. And when I'm giving my talk and, and showing my slides and just, you know, the depth of, of famine and the depth of suffering, the indigenous people are nodding their heads like they know. The, you know, the, the non-indigenous people are shocked because they've never heard that story before. They've been trained up like through schools and just, you know, like our identity as Canadians, as, as decent people. And so really, I think what it is, is, and like, I don't know if this is putting too much into it, but this is kind of an intervention into, you know, the Canadian identity as one of, uh, of humanity and decency, because we sure weren't humane or decent in that situation. And, you know, uh, you, you know, you're, you're from Saskatchewan, Greg, like there are, our kind of creation myth here is that we were the breadbasket of the world. So often when I'm giving a talk, I'll show, you know, the, uh, the recruiting posters for, for settlers and, you know, it's the breadbasket of the world, but the breadbasket of the world was, was built upon, uh, a managed famine that became managed malnutrition at residential schools and managed poverty through the past system and the permit system. Remember that a treaty Indian out here in Western Canada, I think this happened in other parts of the country as well. A treaty Indian could not leave their reserve without a written document from a white government official from 1885, probably into the 1950s, right? Think about the implications for economic development. Think of the education, like you couldn't go visit your, your kid unless you had permission. Uh, so those, those factors have really contributed, again, to that health disparity we see because it's been going on for 140 years. Well, Elizabeth Fenn, who's an American historian, she's written Encounters at the Heart of the World and Pox Americana, she really endorsed your book in a way that I have rarely seen one scholar endorse another scholar. How did it feel to get that endorsement of your book? Oh, um, 
I was humbled by it. I know, I know Elizabeth's work. Um, we've never met in person, but we've been in contact for probably 15 or 20 years, uh, even before, you know, she wrote the blurb. And actually, I, I recommended her to write the blurb. Um, but she's, uh, for all of her success, she's very humble and a uh, very kind person. So, um, yeah, what can I tell you? Uh, it's, uh, like it, it was uh, a, a beautiful write-up, and, uh, and and her writing in, in the new edition is, is super kind as well. Well, I certainly learned a lot from it because it's a very global perspective. Now, you also had critical reflections on your book by... Mary Ellen Kelm, Ian Mosby, and Susan Mellon, all of whom participated in a roundtable discussion at, uh, sponsored by the Canadian Historical Association. Uh, and you've uh, republished those essays in this book. Uh, did their essays make you rethink your own thesis in any fundamental way? It, it was very interesting. I actually made the joke at, at that thing that I don't have to attend my own funeral anymore just because they were they were talking about my work. Um, In the past yeah. tense. <laughs> so I guess one of the things was, uh, like, I realized that clearing the planes is, you know, the, despite the fact that, I, you know, I, I did the, my best with the skills I got, as my, my teacher used to say. Um, but I, I realized, say, that there isn't an Indigenous voice in there. Right. Uh, that was one of Mary Ellen Kelm's thing was that there could have been more sort of indigenous, indigenous methodology. But like I said, uh, as a materialist, like, I, you know, I know where I come from. And these days in in academia, we talk about positionality. Well, I know that I am a materialist settler scholar. And so uh, I honestly didn't feel that comfortable. But what I'm what I'm uh, humbled by is that. Indigenous scholars have used my work as a springboard to have their work accepted, which, you know, like has been a big lesson for me, uh, I guess, in my white privilege, you know, because I had as a, you know, non-affected scholar, as a, as a white scholar writing about these things, I had the air of, uh, of impartiality where my colleagues, my Indigenous colleagues would have been, you know, blown off as, uh, as being radicals or hotheads or something like that. So that's been a big lesson for me. Uh, and, you know, uh, by not going too far in that regard, uh, I've been actually praised by, by some elders and other Indigenous scholars by opening the door for other people to, to pass through. Well, I must say that when I read your dissertation back, I think it was in about uh, 2003, uh, I said... Jim Daschuk is on to something. It, this is a really remarkable piece of work and it needs to see the light of day. And I'm so delighted that uh, that it actually came on to the scene right at the perfect time uh, and was has been read so broadly. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Greg. It's been a pleasure and an honor to, to speak to you. My guest today was Professor James Daschuk. He is the author of Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation, and the Loss of Indigenous Life, the new edition of which was published in 2019 by the University of Regina Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication 
of Documentary History in Canada. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. I want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company, History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of Ottawa Press, and UBC Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on November 13th, 2020. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt. <laughs>